Hello and welcome to Story You Talk Radio. I am your host, Coach Debbie, and I am delighted to share this hour with you. Thank you for reserving this hour to share with me. I'm here every Thursday at 4 o'clock Pacific time, and we offer a replay for you at on Fridays, and that is at 6 a.m. Pacific time. And if you are on the East Coast, that is at 9 a.m. And we can be found all over the world if you choose to just download our app, which is KKNWAM. So, like I said, I am Coach Debbie, and I offer topics all about the stories we live by. There are so many ways in which we are constantly just going about our business day in and day out and getting a chance to express ourselves and be our real authentic self. Many of you know that I help writers and especially first, second, and third time authors put together that first draft of their book. I also work with people that are developing a blog and getting it known in the world for business purposes and also for those that are rebranding and looking for the exact words that's going to attract the exact people that they want to work with. I have a website, CoachDebbie.com, and that's D-E-B-B-Y, CoachDebbie.com. And like I said, every Thursday I show up here and offer you topics around the stories you live by, around the support for your own writing, and I love to get your questions. So please do not hold back. Consider writing into my email. My email address is askcoachdebbie, that's D-E-B-B-Y, askcoachdebbie at gmail.com. And you can also go to my Facebook Messenger and send in a note anytime during this show. We are we are taking your messages at my private Facebook page, which is Debbie Handrich. And it's just like it sounds. Debbie is D-E-B-B-Y and Handrich is H-A-N-D-R-I-C-H. So I always love to get your messages. You know that when I get your messages, I have an opportunity to coach you and to help you with whatever it is you are dreaming up. Maybe you're working on your next book. Maybe you're working on your first book. Maybe you're just about to launch something brand new into the world. I would love to support your process. So, again, send in a note to the email, askcoachdebbie at gmail.com, or maybe my private Facebook messenger, which is Debbie Handrich. And like always, it's really fun to have all these screens up. I've told you before, I feel like a little pilot. You know, I've got my communication with with Eric down there at the radio show. I've got 
uh, I've got the whole communication with um, the people writing in. I've got people that are responding to my newsletter. So all of this is to say we are here to support your writing projects. Now, if you don't mind, I think we're going to have to go ahead and just take one moment here to bring on my guest. And this must might require just a quick extra commercial from us, but bear with us. Sometimes we just, we just have to do a little bit extra. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take a very quick break right here. And I'm going to be back with a publisher. We are both excited to take your call. So stay tuned. I'm going to be right back. Hi, this is Marilyn Milano. If you love animals, then please check out my new show, Love Has Many Faces, Tuesdays from 9 to 9.30 a.m. right here on Alternative Talk 1150. I'll be talking with rescue groups, animal advocates, and other organizations that help animals, sharing their stories, and giving our listeners some tangible ways in which they can help make a difference. That's Love Has Many Faces, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Raising awareness, touching hearts, and saving animals' lives. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. The nicotine in e-cigarettes is addictive and can harm brain development. That's why I worry about teens who try e-cigarettes. Many young people use pod-based e-cigarettes like Juul, which have high levels of nicotine. And because teens' brains are still developing, they can quickly become addicted. The tobacco industry uses fruit and candy flavors to attract young people, often turning them into lifelong users. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. Bored with the other stations? Hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. All righty there. Welcome back. This is Story You Talk Radio, take two. We are so glad you are here today because like I was saying right before our little break there, we are talking about not only the stories you live by, but we're really jumping in today and talking about your publishing dreams and your visions and your goals around publishing. And in the, in the West here where I live, I live in Seattle, although my guest is in California, 
we do things just slightly different than the way they might do it on the East Coast. And that is, uh, uh, to use my guest's word, I think we give a few more green lights to those that are creative and ready to go. So I want to tell you a little bit about who I'm bringing on the show here today. Brooke Warner is the co-founder of She Writes Press, and she has just an amazing and long experience as a writer, an acquiring editor, as an executive editor, and like I said, she is on a mission to level the playing field for authors everywhere, not just the West Coast. Something she said in a TED Talk about three years ago is imagine the limited talented pool if we only heard from the most famous of writers and artists. And she's making a great point there because traditional publishing is often just a bit skewed, to say it kindly, of who they are willing to take. And something that I admire so much about Brooke and the way in which she has co-founded She Writes Press is that she is really giving the green light to the extent that she even refers to it as a green light revolution for people. So I want to bring Brooke on the show and give you the opportunity to meet this talented lady. And I just want to remind you, we are taking your calls and your texts today. So, Brooke, welcome to the show. How are you? I am fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am delighted to have you. And again, thank you so much for hanging in there while technology is not always the most fun thing to to be dealing with, but it's it's what we got right now, right? That's what we got. Yep, exactly. It's what we got. Now, I know, Brooke, that you are you are like me in that you love to work with memoir writing. You you have written your own memoirs and you are also one of the people that works behind the scenes to get more and more and more people publishing their memoirs. But what I find is that a lot of people don't really know what that means and they often go straight to a memoir is the exact same thing as an autobiography. So could you set us straight a little bit in what it is you think a memoir is and what you look for when you are reading memoir? Yeah, I, I talk about memoir being slice of life. Uh, you know, it, it's it's usually thematic. Um, there are absolutely memoirists who span entire decades who might write over, you know, a 30 or 40 year period of their life. But if and when that's the case, then it should be strongly rooted in a theme. And so memoir is also theme-based. It, it often reads like a novel, but where it departs from a novel, of course, is that these are things that actually happen to the person who's writing the book. And then hopefully they're also reaching into reflection, telling their readers why what they're writing about matters. Yeah. 
Exactly. I I work with people so much in those early stages of writing draft number one. That, that's something I love to do is put together workshops where we're getting those thoughts that have been bumbling around in the mind for days, weeks, months, years. Some people have admitted to a decade. We're getting those ideas out into the first draft and preparing people for working with an editor. And often people that come to me, Brooke, are writing their grief story. And you said so well that there was a time when you were told that Grief doesn't sell. Now, I disagree with this, and I know you disagree with this, but can you speak to us about your experience and why you support people that are writing their books that tell a story of grief? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the many topics that bring writers to memoir, of course. People do want to write about things that they've gone through to process hard things, but also, I think, to help, oftentimes, to help other people who are going through something similar. I just know so many memoirists who the reason that they picked up the pen to start writing in the first place was because they were looking for something and they didn't find it. And they thought, well, I should write that, you know? So uh, stories of grief, it's it's a universal human experience, grief and loss and lots of themes around memoir that are very universal experiences. And so I don't think that you can say there's some sort of cap on that experience. Like, oh, that has been written, that's been done. I think that people are looking to read all kinds of experiences. And so I think it's a very short-sighted comment. It was actually a salesperson who said grief doesn't sell. You know, like it's so so limited in its perspective. And then, of course, there's so many books that you can point to that prove the opposite. You know, I think of most of the very famous memoirs that are out there are touching upon grief and loss. So I think the industry tends to reduce things down. You know, they can be very reductive and and not very uh, expansive in their thinking. And I just think we can't say what is going to sell and what's not going to sell, you know, simply by the category or or the experience. It's, It's about so much more than that. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. There was there was a time when um, I I ran the the publishing company that we had a, at our college for eleven years, and we accepted, of course, first our students and our faculty writing, and then we would open it up for national submissions. And our our literary magazine was called Spindrift. And we won regional awards, and we eventually won first place in the nation. And what Mm -hmm. I so often found was that the the pithy little poems that spoke about nature and dahlias that I thought were going to run away with the blue ribbons didn't. It, it was the one about seeing the ghost of a mother, you know, five days after her death or the one where um, 
you know, dad's dad's last breath was taken on a girl's 12th birthday or something like that. It it was those where people, you know, put out their votes and and it was such a good experience for me while I was working in publishing to find out that that's what I mean, what we could say, that's what was selling to that reading audience. I I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think it's exactly what we're what we're speaking to, which is these universal stories, right? That's what people want to hear about, because those are the relatable ones. And, you know, there's, of course, there's, stories that you want to step into someone's life who are writing something very different than what you've lived. And that's another kind of memoir where you read because you want to see the experience of someone from a different culture or a different life experience or a different path. Uh, But no matter what, at the end of the day, those stories also bring empathy and help you see the world differently. So for me, memoir is just such an intimate experience, both my own personal writing and reading from others, you know, it's, it's, you, you get so much on both sides. And I've heard it said, it's like sort of the inhale and the exhale, right. That you're, you're taking in when you're reading and you're breathing out when you're writing. And I, I think there's a real mm-hmm. reciprocity there with, with them are writing. Oh, I love that. Yes. Very much. So very much. So, We're going to take a a break in about eight minutes, but what I would love, Brooke, is if you shared with us just a little bit about your love for editing and getting into publishing, because a lot of writers who want to break into the world of publishing are so intimidated by publishers. And I I want people to know that you are a real, live, living, breathing, lovely woman and what it was that attracted you to the work you love to do. Yeah, I mean, it is. it was story. It's also working with people. There are every kind of personality in publishing, but at the end of the day, people are there because they love books and they love stories. Um, and I do think people get very nervous. Yeah. <laughs> necessarily so, right? But, like, I, I hear that sometimes when I'm having a call with an author that they feel very exposed. They feel very nervous. They feel like, oh, this person has some sort of power to make my book happen. And I just encourage people not to turn over that power, you know, to have a a co-equal relationship with an editor or a publisher is going to make you feel like you're not giving anything away. Um, And of course, respect is there, right? Like listening and and collaborating. But yeah, you're right. Like we're very normal people who got into this business because we love stories and we love books. And it's a strange industry because there is some, you know, kind of glamour associated with authoring and, you know, some people get famous, of course, but it's a strange kind of fame. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. it's not the same fame as like super celebrity um, movie stars and stuff. You know, most authors I know 
most. I mean, there are there are the exceptions, but most authors I know, even the the bestsellers are are pretty down to earth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I also think it can be really tricky to measure the talent and the scope of what an editor knows. I, it's not the same as as someone who builds homes. You know, you can go and look at the home they built and say, wow, that's the most beautiful kitchen I've ever seen. But it's it's kind of tricky to know what sort of skill does my editor have. And yet at the same time, I know that to stand behind these titles, you know, even even when I got promoted to professorship, I didn't even want to take that on. I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm your teacher. <laughs> you know, I, I just I didn't like I was so uncomfortable with that at first. And and then I remember realizing that it it was almost my duty to take on the label because I had a certain insight about people's writing, as do editors, as do publishers. So I think as well, it's important to help the public know what are the different kinds of publishing. We, we know a little about traditional, but what can you tell us about the notion of indie publishing or hybrid publishing? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking. I think uh, it is important because I think people have this dream of getting published. And if your only vision of that dream is through traditional publishing, it's a fairly closed off space. It's very, very hard to break in and not exclusively the terrain of famous people, but but almost. You really have to have made a name for yourself at this point in order to capture the attention of a big agent. And so I think um, the exciting thing about the indie space is what you opened our conversation with, this idea of green lighting, that you can say, I have something I feel is really meaningful that I want to get out in the world. And like for me, for instance, with the books that I've published, my books have probably sold in the ballpark of between 1,000 and 2,000 copies. And it's great for me. I mean, I've touched a lot of people with that kind of reach. But for a traditional publisher, that would be considered a failure. And so it's also about expectations about how how big do you feel like you need to be? I'm not trying to be Brene Brown. You know, I'm not trying to be someone on that level. I'm, I'm working in a a space that I feel really good about and I have a successful career. You know, I think what happens is that we measure ourselves up against these mega successful people. And then we think, oh, well, if we don't reach that, then we're going to fail. But of course, that's not the case at all, right? There's so many of us operating at really high levels and selling, you know, what for a big publisher would be modest sales. And so that's what I think is important is just to look at your own expectations. What are you going to achieve if you touch 2,000 people? You know, that's a big deal. So this is why I like indie publishing because authors are just a little more grounded and they're making, you know, they're really making change in people's lives, but they're not touching the same level of people, you know, as maybe some of their biggest idols. That said, maybe they will someday. 
you know, but you have to start somewhere, right? You have to start at a place where you let yourself in the front door. Yes, and I, I think it's really important for a person to ask herself the question, why is it you're not going to give yourself any credit until you and Oprah sit down and have a chat? I, I mean, you've written a, a, a dang book, and it's out in the world, and thousands of people are reaching it, reading it, and enjoying it, and being impacted by it. I mean, if four people read my book, I'm throwing a party. You know, it, it's not that <laughs> I, I, I think we withhold our own celebration and our own definition of success based on some random model that just doesn't serve us. So I, I really appreciate what you have said there about about getting published and about really giving the notion that indie publishing might serve you better than a traditional publisher. I love that. Well, absolutely. Uh, It can serve you better. And also, like, for a lot of people, they're not going to have the opportunity to traditionally publish, right? So when when you're looking at yes or no, the answer should be yes. And if you have a... a a deep, deep goal to be validated by the traditional publishing world, that's something to work toward. You know, I think there's just a lot of uh, instant gratification in our culture, you know, that and and you see all of these successes and you think, oh, they just got chosen. But that's not how it works. You know, most of the people who we see as successful worked really hard to get there. Um, And so I think there's just a, a very skewed vision around someone just getting plucked by a publisher and then being like wildly successful. I mean, even J.K. Rowling, you know, who's one of the best selling authors of all time, she had something like 50 plus rejections, you know, so it just is, it's important to put things into perspective and, and also to be careful about projecting success onto people when you don't really know what their story is. Yeah, absolutely. When I was learning how to cook, I was shocked and amazed how Julia Child was rejected right and left and left and right before she was at all known, at all. So it it's shocking to even dive in and find out what a, a person's true story was. And, and again, come back to the self and ask, what would make you happy? Not when is it that you're willing to celebrate yourself? Because we can postpone that until we're 150 years old if we're, if we're not really careful with that. We are getting right. some questions, and I'm really glad about that. So i tell you what, we are going to take one little break here, just a quick little break. And when we come back more with Brooke Warner, stay tuned. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard. 
and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world, their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Our veterans risked it all to protect our freedom. One of the best ways to say thank you is to volunteer to support them. At a time in history where kindness is a virtue, volunteering means a lot. For over 47 years, Help Heal Veterans, a not-for-profit organization with the support of citizens like you, have delivered therapy kits to veterans who need them. To volunteer or learn more, visit HealVets.org. That's HealVets.org. Five things you need to know about measles in 30 seconds. The vaccine was developed in 1963, and measles became rare in the U.S. But low vaccination rates are now causing outbreaks that may put you at risk. Measles is highly contagious and spreads easily when an infected person breathes or coughs. Measles can have serious complications and can be deadly. It's also easy to prevent with a vaccine that's safe and effective. Please make sure you and your loved ones are vaccinated. Learn more at NFID.org measles. Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And welcome back to Story You Talk Radio. If you're just tuning in, I am talking today to Brooke Warner, co-founder of She Writes Press in Berkeley, California. Brooke has a long and extensive career as an editor, a publisher, a writing coach. She is trusted by many, many female writers, and I'm sure some guys too. And one thing that I love about Brooke is she took the TEDx stage to, oh, not not uh, say anything bad about traditional publishing, but to kind of settle a score and let it be known that you don't have to wait for a traditional publisher. You can be what she might call a green light revolutionary. And Brooke has a wonderful book I'm going to ask her to tell you a little bit about as well as some of her memoirs. But one of the things I love about your work your work, Brooke, is that you are giving people this empowered feeling that being creative is plenty and that it's time to bring their work into the world. So when you talk about the green light revolutionaries, um, please give us the full title of your book and a little bit about your purpose for taking the TEDx stage that day and sharing your message. Yeah, I mean that book um, that I that the TEDx talk was based on is called Greenlight Your Book, and I called the people who do that Greenlighters. Um, and since then, because I I did the TEDx talk in 2017 and the book came out in 2016, I also wrote another book in, that came out last year in 2019 called Write on Sisters uh, mm-hmm. about women writers. And so the taking this stage for TEDx, yeah, I mean, it was to offer a different perspective. I think I've been fighting for legitimacy in some ways a lot, you know, ever since I entered 
indie publishing and really wanted authors to know like the the measures that traditional publishers use to tell you whether or not you're good really have nothing to do with how good your book is. It's about you, you know, and, and your fame and your celebrity and your contacts. And I think that's an important thing for authors to understand because when our creativity gets rejected, when people say, we don't want you, we're not going to publish you, a lot of authors take that personally and think, I'm not good enough. You know, yeah. this thing that I poured my heart and soul into isn't worthy. And it's really coming from a false premise. And we're t- earlier we were talking about turning over power. You know, I'm very big on not turning over your power, especially your creative power, to a you know, some some out there force that, you know, is kind of making arbitrary decisions at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And it is the arbitrary that often shows up in disguise to us as seeming so meaningful. And it's not. It's not. And it it might take the editor in the field to point that out to you. It might take the coach to point that out to you. But you really, really need to stay in the game and stand behind your content. I I hope uh, for Catherine, our listener, this has bridged the way to her question. She has written in on Facebook Messenger and said... I sent in my book to Simon and Schuster after seven years of research in my area. I was certain that I had plenty of information, yet the rejection letter sent me to bed for nearly two weeks. I feel that if I had been more connected, something would have happened. I have a huge following. Would I be a great candidate for indie publishing? So would you like to answer Catherine there, Brooke? Yeah, totally. I mean, I first of all, I get it, Catherine. You know, that whole thing of sending to bed for two weeks is such a familiar story because it is upsetting. You feel like you have this thing and it should be celebrated or at least accepted, you know. And I, I just, I know so many authors who have taken that journey and felt so disappointed and so the good news is if you get through the other side of that two-week spell or however long it, it puts you out and then you get up on the other side and think you know this thing is good and you're saying a lot of fabulous things like I have a following I have readers that inner knowing is really really meaningful and so I think you're exactly the kind of person that is a green lighter or could be a green lighter if you choose to be. And indie publishing just has a lot of different options. I mean, as um, Debbie and I have been talking, like there, we we haven't gotten into it yet, but there's, there's self-publishing, there's also hybrid publishing. Um, and there are also many, many, many presses that are not Simon and Schuster, <laughs> you know, that are smaller <laughs> independent presses that if you feel like, okay, well, I can't subsidize my own work, I still think you could get published by going directly to a publisher. So there are just all these other paths 
And I think authors can kind of get their sights set on just the big five when there are hundreds of other alternatives. Mm, I love that. I Wonderful. What do you say we just jump into our second question here, which is from Yvonne? And Yvonne says, now that I have retired, I finally have time for my fiction writing. People have told me it would be a good idea to take on a pseudonym. I am all for this idea, but I really don't know why this advice. Could you ask your publisher coming on today about this? Um, Hmm. What would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, if Yvonne, I don't know if you have a a hard-to-pronounce last name. I mean, sometimes people recommend pseudonyms because of that, you know, that people have a a strange last name or something like a long last name. But I always advise keeping your name. You know, I mean, why would you publish under a different name unless you had a very compelling reason? And in this case, you're questioning it. (laughs) You're saying, well, wait, why would I do that? So it's just probably a reminder that there's lots of bad advice out there and you have to be careful because in this world of book publishing, people love to give misguided advice. And I sit on a lot of panels and it's very shocking to me how little even people who are in the industry know about all of publishing because there are so many different segments and so many different ways that you can be siloed. And so, you know, I was on a, on a, um, a panel recently where, you know, I think the woman I was with knew a lot about self-publishing, but, but she was giving some advice that for someone who was not self-published would have been misguided. And so, mm. it, you know, it, it can be quite complicated and, uh, and probably, you know, just bears repeating that you ought to get advice from more than a few people or kind of try to make sense of where people are coming from. Yes, I agree. I I think simple terminologies can also be misinformed among different groups. For example, I was on a panel where they just kept talking about best-selling, best-selling, best-selling. And I knew that the people they were talking about were not New York Times bestsellers, although they very easily could have been Amazon bestsellers. And I made the distinction, and I often make it here, that that what you what I would imagine most people want is to be a bestseller because they were read, not because they sold X amount of books before the due date, <laughs> you know, before the publication date. Um, I even, I even talk about this one gentleman that he took a picture of himself and uploaded it through Creative Space. Did all this, and he got enough people to click that he received his best-selling award, and, and it wasn't even a book. It was just a picture. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of misinformation about the publishing world, and I think it goes back to it being so, so hidden, so mysterious, so uh, once upon a time, you had to be committing 
20, 30, 40, a zillion hours of your week to writing to even think about publishing your book. But days now have changed where we are writing for many, 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 many different reasons. And I'm curious, Brooke, how much does She Writes Press support when it comes to those writing books for their brand? Um, yeah, I mean, people can and, and do write books to their brand, you know, and that's, that's fine. I think that for us, the big question just becomes, you know, how can we still have a spectacular cover? Um, you know, sometimes authors want to be on the cover if they're promoting their brand, for instance, and we're not opposed to that as long as it's a professional shot. Um, and, and then also just understanding whether it makes sense to actually publish on She Writes, because I think the authors that we best support are uh, novelists and memoirists and other people who really benefit from traditional distribution because we have traditional distribution and sometimes authors that are just about speaking, you know, like let's say you have a big following because you speak all over the country and the most books that you're going to sell are through the back of the room sales. That is an author who might be better served by self-publishing, you know, just because of the sheer um, economics of it. If you don't care about being in bookstores, you don't need traditional distribution. So people have very different reasons for publishing. And the other thing I just wanted to tack on about what you were saying earlier is, like, there are a lot of people, unfortunately, who are in this business to game the system. And it's very uncomfortable for me because, you know, what we call book people, you know, book people who are in the business because they love books, um, Book people are not trying to game the system. Book people have sound advice. But there are lots of people who have capitalized on just how many people want to write books. And they give bad advice and they do kind of sketchy things, you know, like taking a picture of, I think the guy you're talking about took a picture of his foot and sold it on Amazon. And, you know, these things are just, unfortunate i think it's a lot of noise and that the people who you know ultimately break through in the end are not the gamers (laughs) you know they're the people who are doing the hard work and who take this seriously and so you know figuring out where you land in that environment and and just being steadfast in it is is meaningful yes meaningful very key word there i wonder what do you think in this day and age book about agents. It it used to be that if you, I mean, certainly before self-publishing, that you would want a relationship with an agent. Do you have any advice about where that stands today and who might benefit most from an agent? Yeah, I mean, lots of people want an agent because an agent opens doors. You know, an agent I think if you want to publish with the big five, you know, like Simon & Schuster or Random House, you actually have to have an agent. They don't accept unsolicited manuscripts. So you have to have representation. I feel great about agents. You know, I think agents serve an important role in this ecosystem. Uh, I think they are very much champions of authors and they help authors navigate a complicated system. The only thing about agents is that they don't make money unless, you make money and you have to make significant money for them to feel that your project is worth it. 
So I know, you know, I, when I used to work in traditional publishing, I had a, a funny agent friend who used to tell me that anything that she sold that was $10,000 or less was a pro bono project for her because, Whoa. you know, she was only making uh, uh, $1,500 on that project, right? That's not a way to make a living. These, these agents want to sell six-figure projects so that they make a decent commission. And so they're not going to waste time on books that they don't think have big, big potential. And so it can just contribute to what we were talking about earlier, right? Which is like, you feel like you're getting rejected, but it's not necessarily because you have a problematic project. It's just that you don't have that, that wow factor, you know, that is really kind of driving the traditional industry. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love how you called them champions for you. I've always viewed an agent as exactly that. You know, they're they're almost like your you know your auntie. <laughs> that <laughs> I I know they're working for money, but they're they're so motivated to help you, the writer, survive and and get your work exactly where you want it to go. Um. You know, one thing that you talked about in your TEDx talk is you said sometimes it takes walking through fire to see the path you thought you wanted to be on wasn't meant to be your path. And then you went on to say creative pursuits can be tied up to external validation, which we talked about a little bit here this idea for external validation. But what I also want to point out to people is that sometimes the dream of writing a book starts to change once you're writing a book. And I would imagine you have experienced this so much with the people you're working with as, as they're writing, they are shifting. And so is the dream. Would you say that publishers are, are always working with that or um, is it more contract based and you write it all out early on? What can you say about that? Um, I mean, I think it just really varies. I mean, like I think of myself as a pretty pragmatic publisher, um, you know, in the sense that I want authors to look at what they're doing from a like from a business lens and educate themselves about the market and in part because I don't want them to get hurt. I don't want people to have false expectations and then, you know, be uh, there's so many authors who are like, well, I'm going to be your next best selling author and I this, you know, and then the reality of the experience is that it's really tough and it's really competitive. And so it's, I think it can be hard because, I think there are a lot of people like me who believe in the dream, you know, who understand that that part of the dream is, is becoming a published author, you know, that it's really meaningful and that it's an individual experience and that it's thrilling for every person. But, it's but, you know, a lot of people make this analogy to, um, to a baby. And as much as I don't really love that analogy, there is a, the, the place where it's most resonant for me that, an author's book is like their baby is that it's also very common. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you're in love with your own baby more than anyone else will be. Right. And, and so 
therefore you have to champion and and be out there in the world, you know, pushing your project. It's an extension of you. And so I just think there's a lot of really complicated emotions around book publishing because there's so much desire to be seen and to have a success, but there's also like exposing. And so there, it brings up shame and fear. And then there's also sky high expectations. And there's, there's really few things I can think of that people do that bring up so many conflicting emotions in people. Um, and, and so it's kind of, I guess I'm trying to answer the question by saying like, hold the dream, you know, it's yeah. great to be, you know, to imagine all that is possible. But if you're if you're only in the dream world and your two feet are not on the ground and you're not being pragmatic about the realistic, um, you know, just outcomes of publishing, you're likely not to be a career author because mm-hmm. it's just going to be too hard for you. You know, you're going to get knocked down and you're not going to feel like you can keep going. And so the best authors are the ones who are just like, yep, got it, you know, very on to the next book, um, because that's kind of how you have to, you have to be prolific and just kind of keep your head down and, and keep writing. Yes. Keep your head down and keep writing. <laughs> it's, it's not what people want to hear. And yet, if you get into the habit of it, you find you create a relationship with it and you like it. <laughs> you like it. Which brings me to Ashley. Um, you're working so hard for me here, Brooke. Are you ready for another? <laughs> sure. Are you ready for another question? Ashley says. Uh, Ashley says I started writing fiction in my teens. I now have three manuscripts that I would be willing to show to an editor. Is it realistic to think? that I could work with the same publisher again and again, or should I be thinking that I would, should I be thinking that I would be picking new publishers each time? Did you follow that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, my advice is just to get your first publisher, <laughs> you know, yes. it, it's a partnership. And if your book does not sell well it's unlikely that the publisher will publish your next book it won't be personal you know it will be about the fact that they couldn't publish your first one and so it's pretty hard for them to back you on the second one when they're paying for everything right so again i mean that's where i'm saying there's all these conflicting emotions you know where you're bringing you know so much hope and aspiration to the table and the publisher maybe is too, but they're looking at you as a business bet, you know, and if the bet doesn't work out for them, they're not going to be like, oh, well, we love you and you're such a good person. So we'll publish your second book. It just doesn't go that way. And so, um, I, I, so I think my answer to you gently and kindly is that you're getting ahead of yourself. Um, you know, that you need to sell that first book and be a great partner to your publisher by, making sure that you do all the things that a, a, you know, a dedicated author would do to get as many sales and to get, you know, as many people into interested in your book. And then if that all happens and it all goes well and your publisher is happy with your sales, then they will want you to do your second book with them. 
Yeah, very good. Do you have any industry numbers that would help people out? What, Like what is a typical uh, number that Ashley should be hoping for? Um, when you say numbers, what you mean like social media following or what are you talking about? Oh, there? sorry. No, like um, I, I'm with you. I, I feel that the publisher is completely partnering with you as a business deal. So is, is there a standard number? Cause I don't know this. Is there a standard number that publishers think of for first time, first time writers? Okay. For, for sales, you mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think there is a standard number because it's going to definitely vary. The The, the deal is, like, um, it depends on your advance, right? So if you got a $10,000 advance versus a $100,000 advance, you can it shows right there what the expectations of the publisher are. So if you get a $10,000 advance, they might be quite happy if you were to sell 5,000 books. If you got a $100,000 advance, they will be very unhappy with 5,000. You will fall far short of their target if they offered you that much money. So that's why sometimes small advances on small presses are actually a blessing. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that I haven't sold more than 2,000 copies of my own book, right? So I would have been a failure on a traditional house. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's, it's important to look at it for what it is. You know, I think people get a lot of stars in their eyes um, yeah. around things. And, you know, I don't know anything about the, the woman who asked the question, but if you have all of these books, I think trying to start to put them out there, you know, whether it's to an agent or to a house and see what kind of response you get. Because, you know, all of us are kind of living in hypothetical land until we start to share our work. Yes. Yes. Well said. Ashley, I hope that serves your question well. Brooke, we are running out of time here. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on with two decades of expertise here and sharing it with the listeners today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You betcha. I'd love to have you back. Anytime. Okay. Okay. For everyone else, I want to remind you that I am here every Thursday at 4 o'clock we talk about the stories you live by, and so often we are talking about the books, the blogs, and the brands you are writing. Thank you for joining me, and as always, namaste, my friends. Mm -hmm.